Listen, if you are new here today and have no idea who I am, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at our church. And uh, this morning, we are continuing our series through the letter of Galatians, and we have actually uh, are now arriving at essentially the home stretch. Um, we have entered into chapter six, and we've been in this series since January, I believe. Um, but just in case you think we're almost done, in July, we're going to come back and look at all the fruit of the Spirit uh, individually. So brace yourself for that. Um, but we're excited to see what God does through it. And, and I hope that this series has been a blessing to you. I know that it's been a blessing to me. So our passage today comes to us from the end of Galatians 5 uh, through the beginning of Galatians 6. So we're going to start by looking at Galatians 5, verse 26. And then I'm going to read through Galatians 6 verse 6. So if you're able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians 5, 26 through Galatians 6, verse 6. And if you're ready, say, I'm ready. ready. Paul writes, let us not become conceited. Everyone say conceited. conceited. Provoking one another, envying one another, Brothers, if anyone is caught, everyone say caught, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we come before you this morning, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here again today. God, we are grateful that your mercies are new each day. Lord, you tell us, Jesus, not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have its own problems. But we are grateful that even today, even though today has problems, Lord, today also provides us with new mercies. And so we're grateful for that reality. And Father, I pray um, for this time. God, I am grateful for this passage, and I'm looking forward to unpacking it. I feel that it's a passage that really just shows how brilliantly nuanced your word, the word is. How, how brilliantly balanced the gospel is. And so I pray, Lord, that in light of that, you would keep me, Lord, from adding to it or taking away from it. But I pray that from the moment I say amen, that it would no longer be me speaking, but you speaking through me. I ask you, Holy Spirit of God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We need you, Lord, and we ask you, Lord, to be here among us and that this time would be for your glory and for our good and we ask it and we beg it in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, you may be seated. Now, in this passage, Galatians 5.26 through Galatians 6, verse 6, it, it almost feels as if the apostle Paul is uh, switching things up. It, it almost feels like he's changing the subject. And what I mean by that is, up to this point, he's been talking about a lot of vertical realities. 
And then all of a sudden, he gets to this, this place, and he starts talking to us about horizontal relationships. You see, but what I would argue is that the Apostle Paul here, he's not switching gears, and he's not changing the subject. He is actually landing the plane. You see, because up to this point, the Apostle Paul has been defending the gospel. He has been defining the gospel. He has been explaining the gospel. And I would argue that what he's doing here in this section is he is starting to apply the gospel. He is showing uh, the Galatian believers and us what the gospel does in a relationship. What difference does the gospel make in a relationship? You see, up to this point, he has been addressing a few things. He, uh, uh, essentially, chapters one through three, he's been addressing gospel faith. And then as we started getting into four and five, he, he started switching gears a little bit and, and, and started to talk to us not just about gospel faith, but about gospel freedom and gospel fruit. And now here at the beginning of chapter six, what he's going to do is he's going to show us how that faith and that freedom and that fruit influence and affect our fellowship. Which if you've been through our partnership class, if you've been through the DNA course on discipleship that I teach, you know that the, the five things that we use, the five gospel-centered metrics that we use to measure gospel centrality in the life of someone is gospel faith, gospel fluency, gospel freedom, gospel fruit, and the last one is gospel fellowship. And so you see the uh, Apostle Paul address all those metrics and so here in this passage, he's going to show how the faith, the freedom, and the fruit specifically affect the fellowship. In other words, what he's going to do is he's going to show us how the gospel message impacts our relationships. He's going to show how the vertical realities of the gospel play a major role and, play, and have a major difference, make a major difference in our horizontal relationships. And so in this passage, I would argue that there are four gospel lessons that Paul teaches us about Christian community, four gospel implications for Christian fellowship. The first lesson, the first implication that I believe the Apostle Paul is teaching us here is this. If you're taking notes, the gospel keeps us from a superior pride and an inferior pity. The gospel keeps us from a superior pride and an inferior pity. Look what he says in verse 26 of chapter five. He says, let us not become conceited. Everyone say conceited again. Provoking one another, envying one another. See, I would argue that what that verse teaches us is that the gospel keeps us from prideful superiority and from pitiful inferiority. Paul is arguing here in verse 26 that a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered person avoids conceit. They avoid being conceited. But, but what does that word there, conceited, mean? Well, in the Greek, the word there, conceited, literally means a false or pseudo-pride, an empty or hollow arrogance. Now, the reason why that word is so important is the, the word, the reason why it's an empty arrogance, it's a hollow pride, is because it's literally someone who is prideful but has no reason to be prideful. There is no evidence for why they should be prideful and yet they are still prideful. That's why the word there, conceited, means a false, a pseudo, an empty, a hollow pride 
or arrogance. The, the way that the King James translated, I'm pretty sure, and it actually comes straight from the Greek, is a vainglorious person. Someone who struggles with vainglory. And I feel like that word is such a picture of what Paul is actually trying to say here. Because essentially the word vain is a word that it's used numerous times, specifically in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, Lord willing, in the fall, we're going to do a very, very long series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, the word vain comes up again and again and again. Essentially, the word vain just means empty. It means something that's hollow, something that does not last. The, the word picture is of a cloud with no rain in it. So, so when the Bible says that people who are conceited are struggling with vain glory, it's an empty glory. It's a pseudo glory. It's a hollow glory. And here's the implication that many of us may not want to think about, but it's true. Not only is it a pseudo vainglory, but the implication is, is that the glory that we are attributing to ourselves is actually being robbed from God himself. It's not a neutral vainglory. It's a glory that's being robbed from God himself. That's the implication. So, so, so real quick, just in case you think, oh, well, that, that's someone else's problem. I don't struggle with conceit at all. Every single one of us struggles with conceit to one degree or another. That's what we're going to learn under this first lesson. And essentially, here's what C.S. Lewis argues. C.S. Lewis argues in his book, Mere Christianity, that there are two forms of conceit. There are two forms of arrogance. There are two forms of self-absorbed, self-centered pride. Two forms. When we think of a prideful person, we only tend to think of one form, but the reality is that there are two forms of it, okay? So, so this is what Lewis says. The first form, the first type of a self-centered, self-absorbed, uh, 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 arrogant person is the superiority form of pride. Essentially, that's the person we all think of when we think of a prideful person. This is the person who looks out into the world and when they compete and compare them, compete with others and compare themselves to others, they do the math in their head and almost always they end up on top. That's what the arrogant person does. The, the, the prideful person does. The superiority person does. They do the math and regardless of which area, uh, they usually avoid the areas they're not good at and they compare themselves in the areas that they see themselves as good at, and they always come out on top. They are superior to everyone else. That's the first form of pride that many of us tend to think of. Here's what Lewis says though. Since the definition of arrogance, since the definition of conceit is someone who is self-centered and self-focused, here's what that means. There's another form of arrogance and conceit that nobody likes talking about. And it's not the prideful superior person it's the pitiful inferior person. It's the person who, when they do the math, when they compare themselves to others, they always end up below everyone else. Everyone is always better than them. Everyone always has more than them. But according to Lewis, because of the definition of pride, because of the definition of, of conceit and of arrogance, the pitiful person who struggles with an inferiority complex is just as self-centered, just as self-absorbed as the person that struggles with the prideful superiority complex. That's what Lewis teaches. And so that's one of my favorite authors. My favorite commentator, though, is Dr. John Stott. 
And John Stott, in this passage, this one verse that we just looked at, he takes that concept that Lewis introduces in mere Christianity, and he uses it uh, to explain what Paul is saying here in verse 26. Here's what, here's what Stott says about what Lewis said. He said, the prideful person, the person who struggles with the superiority form of pride, what they do is they provoke people. The pitiful person, the person who struggles with self-pity in an, in an inferiority complex, what they do is they envy people. So the two things that Paul gets after here are the two things, the, the symptoms that each type of person displays. So we're going to look at each one, okay? The prideful superior person, the person who struggles with this superiority form of pride, what they do is they provoke people. That's what it says in the text. It, they provoke people. The Greek word therefore provoked is the only time that it's used in the New Testament. And it refers to challenging people, to competing with people. It's someone who is challenging and competing always. But when they do it, like I said, when they compare themselves, when they uh, compete with others, they almost always come out on top. They, they assume that they are better than everyone else. So the prideful superior person provokes. But the pitiful inferior person, they don't provoke. Paul says they envy. The word there, envy, is actually worse than the word jealousy. Because here's what jealousy is. Jealousy is me uh, wanting something that someone else has. Envy goes a step further. Envy not only wants what they have, envy doesn't want them to have it. And so if the first person, the, uh, superior, the, the superiority person, does the math and in comparing themselves, they, they think they're better, this person does the math and in comparing themselves, they, they become bitter, ungrateful, victimy. I would argue that the gospel keeps us from both. There's a reason why he talks about the walk, keeping in step with the spirit right before he talks about this, that when we keep in step with the spirit, when we are spirit empowered and gospel centered, it keeps us from being conceited, either the superiority form of conceit or the inferiority form of conceit. The gospel keeps us from both, but how? How does the gospel keeps us from both? Well, the gospel kills our vainglory, get this, by giving us real glory. In, in the Old Testament, the word for glory is the Hebrew word kabod, which literally refers to something that's weighty, something that's heavy. The way the gospel deals with our vain glory is by offering us true glory, weighty glory, actual glory, okay? Now, here's something that stood out to me over the last few weeks. I actually shared it with my elders at our elder meeting on Tuesday night because it, it jumped, out, uh, jumped out at me when I read it. It was something that I hadn't ever really wrestled with, to be honest. But I'm, I'm reading through a, a series of books right now, and the name of the series is Real Life Theology. And there's a, is numerous little books, and one of the books is on the gospel. And in that book, there's a chapter dedicated specifically to the concept of glory in the Bible. And here's something that I learned over the last few weeks that I had no idea about. I had never really processed it. Here's what the author said. The author argued that when we sinned against God, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they not only fell into guilt in a negative sense, they failed to give God glory in a positive sense. So, so, so don't miss this. This is, this is crazy. When Adam and Eve sinned, 
it wasn't just because they did bad stuff. Sin doesn't just make you do bad stuff. It keeps you from doing the good stuff. Sin doesn't just keep you in guilt. It keeps you from giving God glory. So, so don't miss this. And I had never noticed this. There's a few passages that once I understood this concept, it changed the way I, I viewed just, again, just another level, another reason to, to give God glory for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it says in Romans chapter three, don't miss this. It says, for we have all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't say that we have fallen short of the law of God, even though we have. It doesn't say that we have fallen short of the standards of God, even though we have. It specifically says that we have fallen short of the glory of God. That there is a certain level of glory that God deserves that we have not given him. So sin is so pervasive that not only does it keep us in guilt, but it keeps us from glorying and giving God the glory he deserves. So, so, so get this, when Jesus came, we've talked about this numerous, in numerous uh, times, that Jesus didn't just come uh, 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 to avoid the bad stuff, he came to do all the good stuff. So when he died on the cross, he fulfilled the law, and by fulfilling the law and dying in our place, he not only dealt with our guilt, but he restored to God the glory. Don't miss that. How beautiful is that? So, so, so why do I say all that? Well, I say all that because when you think the only thing Jesus came to do is to deal with your guilt in a negative sense, you're not fully giving him the, the glory, no pun intended, that he deserves. Because he came not just to deal with our guilt, he came to restore the glory of God. And that's why it says in Psalm 3, verse 3, it says that, that, that David, he's running away from Absalom, and, and David is he's, he's overwhelmed, and he's in the wilderness, and he's scared for his life. And he says in Psalm 3, verse 3, really early in the book of Psalms, he says, Lord, you are my shield, you are my glory, and you are the lifter of my head. So David knew that his glory wasn't in himself. He knew that his glory and his boast was the Lord. But listen, if that's true of David in the Old Testament, how much more true is that of us in the New Testament? Jesus Christ is our glory. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see that our glory is the cross of Christ. We are to boast in nothing else but in the cross of Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, I go to this passage as often as I can because it's my favorite passage on sanctification in all the New Testament, where it says that the spirit of freedom, we talked about the spirit last week, the spirit of freedom, he enables us, get this, to, to behold, as in a mirror, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what the author of the book says that when Adam and Eve sinned, before Adam and Eve sinned, they were perfect mirrors who can reflect the glory of God. When, when they sinned, the mirror cracked. They weren't reflecting it the way they were supposed to. But what's beautiful is that in the gospel, it says, when you are saved by Christ, when you are indwelt by the spirit, that spirit of freedom, what he does is he enables us as in a mirror, he specifically says that, as in a mirror, it allows us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then it says, get this, that as we do it, we are transformed from one level of glory to another level of glory. So however, you think, however good you think the gospel is, it is infinitely better. Because Jesus didn't come just to deal with our guilt. He came to restore the glory of God. 
The reason why I can glorify God positionally, uh, practically, is because Jesus glorified God positionally. So what that means, church, is that our glory is the person of Christ. Our glory is the work of Christ. Our glory is the word of Christ. Our glory is the gospel of Christ. Our glory is not in ourselves. To whatever degree your glory is in yourself, it is a vainglory. It is an empty, hollow glory. Jesus Christ and him alone is our glory. Amen? Amen. And here's what happens. Here's why the gospel is good news. Because if, if, if the person who, who, who preaches the gospel to their soul, the person who reminds themselves where their glory is actually found, not only do they avoid the vain glory, not only do they become humble, they decrease so that Christ increases, right? But they, they, they do two things. All of a sudden, when you, when you preach the gospel to your soul and you remind yourself of where your glory is found, the, the, the superior person no longer ignores people and the inferior person no longer idolizes people. When I understand where my glory is actually found, and I'm filled with genuine, the, the genuine glory, the, the, the real article that Jesus provides, all of a sudden you avoid the ignoring of people on the one hand and the idolizing of people on the other. Once I understand the gospel, I can no longer look down on people in superiority, but I no longer look up to people in inferiority because at the foot of the cross, we are all equally sinful and yet all equally saved. I get to approach my relationships from a place of fullness and not emptiness. And that allows me to love people, not use people. And what's beautiful is as the spirit of God preaches the grace of God to our souls, the more humble we become in light of our sin, and yet the more bold we become in light of our salvation. The, the true Christian person grows both in humility and in boldness at the same time. Humility because I, I am more sinful than I'll ever know. And yet courage and boldness because I am more loved than I could ever have hoped. That's just the first implication. <laughs> the second implication for gospel fellowship is this. The gospel calls us to gentle restoration, not judgmental retribution. The gospel calls us to gentle restoration, not judgmental retribution. Look what it says in verse one. It says in verse one of chapter six, brothers, if anyone is caught, everyone say caught, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The, the, the second lesson, the second implication has to do with restoration, not retribution. See, I would argue that the gospel doesn't just change our view of ourselves, it changes our view of others. Now, don't miss what Paul says here. Essentially what Paul's teaching, let me summarize it before I unpack it. Paul is saying here that when a sibling, a brother or sister in Christ is caught in a sin or a trespass, our job is to restore them gently. 
But what does that all mean? Let me first say this. The, the first thing it means is this. When Paul begins verse 1 with brothers, what he is showing us is that he is talking to Christians. Okay? And now, why is that important? Well, it's important for two reasons. Uh, the first reason why it's important is because the only people we should try to restore gently are the people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Because we've talked about this when we looked at judgment uh, uh, a few months ago in the Sermon on the Mount. The problem is, is that a lot of us spend all our time judging outsiders and none of our time judging insiders. The Bible says God will judge the outsider. And I just, I just don't get why we are shocked by the immoral behavior of the world around us. Jesus refers to us as the salt of the earth for a reason. Salt in those days was used as a preservative. You would put it on meat so that the meat wouldn't go bad. So if we are the salt of the earth, the implication is the earth is meat that's going bad. If I put meat that's supposed to be refrigerated on my counter instead of in my freezer, I can't get mad at the meat for doing what meat does. And some of us are spending all our time judging people who don't know Jesus because they don't live like Jesus. When the Bible says that the people we should be holding accountable and the people we should be judging is one another, those who claim to be inside the faith. Here's the other thing, and this is so important, and I don't, I don't want to miss this. Because he uses the word brothers, it also implies they are sisters, right? People who are, are siblings because God is our father in Christ, right? He's talking about people who are in Christ. One of the things that we talk about in the discipleship course, DNA, is, is we talk about the indicative and the imperative. That word there, brothers, is an indicative. What I mean by that, it, it is a statement of fact that is true because of the gospel. That the reason why we are brothers and sisters is because God be, has become our father. Here's why I say that before we jump into any of this. Here's how I illustrated it in the first service. When we place our faith in Jesus, one of the things that the New Testament says and refers to, it refers to Jesus as the greater Noah, but it also refers to him as the greater ark. Jesus becomes our ark. What do I mean by that? When you place your faith in Jesus and you are brought into Christ, you are put in the ark and the door is sealed. Okay? What that means is, is that there's nothing that can get you off the ark. Not even you. Okay? Once that door has been shut, here's the way I would illustrate it. I don't know why we pretend like, like Noah and his family never struggled with seasickness. We are like they never uh, stumbled over themselves as they were walking uh, uh, on this ship and on the ark. But, but just because they were struggling to stand on the ark, it doesn't mean that they were removed from the ark. The reason why I say that to you is because today, if you are a brother or a sister, if you have been adopted by the Father, your standing before God is not determined by your hold on Jesus, it's determined by Jesus' hold on you. Amen. And so if you're in the ark and the door's been closed, you might be stumbling right now, you might be struggling right now, but you can't lose something that you did nothing to get. Come on. And that was extra. That wasn't even in the notes. But that's good. That's good news. Come on. The door is closed. I'm in the ark. I'm in the son of God. And so I might stumble and I might struggle and I might doubt. But my salvation is not in myself. It's in Jesus Christ alone. So, so let, me, let me calm down a little bit. 
The word here, caught, it, it literally, get this, this is so important. The word there, caught, it means to be overtaken or to be overwhelmed by something. The word there, caught, it, it carries the idea of being surprised by something, of being caught in a trap. In other words, this person wasn't looking for it. They fell into it. The, the, the word there, it implies, the word trespass means to trip, to fall, okay? As a matter of fact, to prove that point, the word is written in the passive voice. It's something that was done to them. So I'm not saying they're victims in it, but what I'm saying is they weren't actively trying to seek it. We said last week, we said the word practice is very important in the, past, the, week, the passage from last week. Why? Because the word practice implies a pattern, a, a habitual, continual behavior. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about a brother or a sister who has been overtaken, overwhelmed, surprised, caught in something. And here's the other thing that's interesting to me. The, the word there, caught, it implies something that we see with our own two eyes. In other words, we're not going out to assume. We're not sin hunting here. Man, I feel like you're sinning right now. I have no evidence for it, but no, it implies something that is seen. Even if it's not seen by the individual, it's seen by you. It's not based on assumptions. It's not sin hunting. It's an individual who has found themselves overtaken, overwhelmed, caught in a net, caught in a trap. You see it and you're coming alongside them to help them. Paul says that when this happens, get this, we are called to restore. We are called to restore that individual. The, the Greek word there for restore is actually a medical term. And here's what it means. It means to repair something, to mend something, or the, 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 what it was really used for was when, when a doctor would set a bone that's been broken back in place so that it would heal correctly. That's what the word there to restore means, which, which implies that it's not gonna happen overnight. Restoration can take time, but it's to set a bone back in its proper place so that it can heal correctly. That's what the word there restore means. In other words, our purpose, get this, is not to hurt them, but to help them. Our purpose is not to rebuke them more, but to restore them. Our purpose is not to hold them down, but to help them up. That's the implication that is getting at, that we're getting at here. And then it says that we aren't just to restore them, that's that medical term, but we are to do it gently. And the word there in Greek means meekly. It means humbly. It refers to being gracious. We are to do it gently. The opposite of the word gentle is harsh or abrasive or aggressive. We are to do it gently. We're not called to be lenient, but we are called to be loving. See the distinction there? Let me also say this. One of the things that can happen in the church, and maybe you, you have navigated this, okay? There are people here who've tried the whole community thing. You've tried the whole fellowship thing. And you've been hurt by the very people that were supposed to help, right? So maybe you walked away from church, maybe you walked away from intimate community, and this is your first time around church. You're still praying about, am I, gonna, am I, am I willing to give it another try? Here's something that uh, my wife and I heard a few months ago that was really eye-opening to me. The individual was talking about church trauma and church hurt, and he talked about health, healthcare 
or hospital-acquired illnesses. And, and here's essentially what it was, or, or, or hospital-acquired diseases. I think it was the word. Here's what it was. It's people who go to the hospital, and then as they are at the hospital, they end up getting more sick before they get better. Okay? He compared that to church hurt. And here's what he said. If you get hurt at a particular hospital, you know what would be really dumb? To never go back to any hospital ever again. The better response would be, I'm never going back to that hospital. But I'm not giving up on hospitals. But here's what some of you guys have done. You, you, you have, without even realizing, you were hurt at a church and instead of learning from it and saying, okay, I'm not going back to that church, you've given up on the church. But what's crazy is that the place where you get healed is in the church. So the people that hurt you are the only people that can help you. But if you overreact, you end up walking away from the only place where you could find healing, restoration, and reconciliation. That's the danger. And that's why I've always struggled with the word deconstruction because I heard someone say it this way, the better word is detangling my faith, not de de deconstructing my faith. Deconstructing means I'm gonna tear the whole Lego set down and put it away, right? But detangling means I've been given bad theology. I've been hurt by people who haven't really represented the gospel. I'm gonna detangle this thing, but there's no reason for me to never go back to a hospital because a hospital hurt me. Does that make sense? So maybe for you, that's literally the only thing you had to hear today. Here's why we need to be gentle though. And this is something that unfortunately is not talked about enough in the church. The reason why we have to be gentle and humble and meek and gracious, Paul says, essentially, be careful lest you fall yourself, lest you be tempted yourself. There's another place in scripture where it says, for those who think too highly of themselves, be careful lest you fall. That, that, in other words, get this, the reason why we should be humble and gentle when we deal with other people's sin is because it's only a matter of time that you're the person having to get restored. Don't miss that. Because I would argue that the thing that keeps us humble is that we know we are capable. The more I realize that I am just as capable of it as that person is, the more humble and gentle I will be when I address their problem. The problem is, let's be honest, there are some of us who just think, I would never do that. <laughs> Maybe you have a family member that's hurt you. Maybe you have a spouse that's hurt you. Maybe you have a, a child that's hurt you. Maybe you have a friend that's hurt you. I would never do what that person. If you are actually saying that and believe it, you will not be able to give that person the grace that God's actually given you. Here's the way we've described it in the past. This is how we talked about it when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. Every single one of us has these acorns of sin. We're born with them, right? There's the, the, the acorn of anger and of murder, and there's one of lust. There's all these different acorns, right? But, but here's the thing. If I were to take an acorn and, and, and put it in my top drawer at my house and never look at it again, that acorn isn't going to grow because it hasn't been put in the environment for it to grow. But if I were to take that same acorn 
and dig a hole and put it in my backyard and water it and cultivate it, that acorn's gonna grow. Why? Because it's been put in the environment for it to grow. Every single one of us has the capability of doing all sins. But by the grace of God, some of us haven't watered certain acorns. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you grew up with a two-parent household. Maybe you grew up in an in a, in a upper-class neighborhood. Praise God for all that stuff. But don't get it twisted. Just because the acorn hasn't been watered doesn't mean you're not capable of all those things. So the way to stay humble is by daily reminding ourselves that we are capable of what they've done and worse. We are no better than anyone. And that's why Paul says that a spiritual person will know what to do. A spiritual person will handle this correctly. The word there, spiritual, in the text, it refers to someone who has been living in light of their gospel faith. It refers to someone who is walking in light of their gospel freedom. It refers to someone who is producing gospel fruit. That person will handle this situation biblically. And here's why we need to, church. Here's why we have no option. Because according to 2 Corinthians 10, the apostle Paul, he describes Jesus as gentle and as meek. Same Greek word, gentle. The reason why we can, we, we can and we have to be gentle and gracious to others is because our Savior was gentle and gracious with us. How dare we not offer to people what he has offered to us? You see, because when Jesus Christ came down, he didn't just find us caught in some passive sin. No, no, no. He caught us and found us in, in, in active disobedience and rebellion. And yet what we are told is that even though our condition was far worse, his salvation and his response was infinitely better because Jesus, he didn't just come to restore us, but he came to redeem us. He came to rescue us. He came to reconcile us. He came to take the retribution that we deserved so that we might get the restoration that he deserved. Ephesians chapter two says that when Jesus showed up on the scene, not only were we caught in trespasses and sins, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But in that same chapter, it says, but God in his love and in his mercy, he made us alive together with Jesus Christ, our Lord. And how did he do it? Well, Romans four tells us how he did it. Same Greek word again. It says he was delivered over for our trespasses, for our transgressions. He died so that we might live. And if our Savior was gentle and gracious with us, how dare we not be gentle and gracious with others? That's my second point. The third gospel lesson, the third gospel implication is this. The gospel, this is actually my favorite one. The gospel empowers us, get this, to carry another's burden while stewarding our own load. It empowers us to carry another's burden while stewarding our own load. Look what it says in verses two through five. It says in verse two, Bear one another's burdens. Everyone say burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, everyone say nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work 
And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Everyone say load. So the third lesson, the third implication that we learn is that the gospel empowers us to bear one another's burdens while at the same time stewarding our own load. Now, the reason why I love this implication, this lesson so much, is because this is the one that as I was studying, I was blown away by just how balanced and nuanced the gospel actually is. It allows us to find gray in situations that we tend to treat as black and white. Okay, here's why. Because it almost seems contradictory what Paul's saying, right? In verse two, he says, I had you repeat it. He says, we are to bear one another's burdens. That's what he says in verse two. But then it seems like he contradicts himself in the same passage because in verse, in verse five, he says, but carry your own load. So you're like, what is it? Which is it, Paul? Do I, do I help bear burdens or do I carry my own load? What am I called to do? Why are you contradicting yourself? Well, the reality is Paul isn't actually contradicting himself. And I'm going to show you here in a second, because what Paul is going to show us is that the gospel, get this, it, it teaches us and it enables us to avoid prideful independence on the one hand and pitiful codependence on the other. And it enables us and allow us to instead produce interdependence. The gospel keeps you from independence and codependence, and it enables you to pursue interdependence. So let me show you how these verse two and verse five are not contradictory. The word burden there in verse two, get this, it refers to a heavy stone. It refers to an unbearable weight, an oppressive yoke that one person can't carry by themselves. That's what the word there burden means in Greek. The word load in Greek though, in verse five, refers to, get this, a soldier's individual backpack. It refers to a ship's cargo. Why do I say that? Well, what that implies is, is that there are certain things that we are to help others carry. And there are certain things that only we should carry. There are certain things that are burdens that require more than one person. And there are certain things that are loads that only require you. And that, that load is what God's going to hold you accountable for when, as a believer, you stand before him at the Bema seat. He's going to ask you how you stewarded your particular backpack, your particular cargo. But that's the distinction. And that's why the Apostle Paul here is not contradicting, contradicting himself. Because the word burden and the word load in Greek are two totally different words. So in light of that, there are so many implications. So many implications. The first one is this. The first implication in light of the distinction that Paul makes is that every single person in this room is going to have burdens. Now I know that seems almost obvious, but it really isn't for a lot of people. You see, because if the gospel you believe is the name it, claim it, prosperity gospel, God only has blessings for me. Oh, well, sometimes, but sometimes God has a burden for you. Sometimes there's blessings and sometimes there's burdens. We said last week, sometimes there's breakthroughs and sometimes there's breakdowns. But nobody wants to talk about the breakdowns. We only want to talk about the breakthroughs. 
By Paul saying what he is saying, the implication is every single person in this room, even if you don't have one right now, at some point in your life, you will have a burden to carry. That burden can be physical. That burden can be financial. That burden can be relational. That burden can be uh, 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 spiritual. But we are going to have burdens. That is a promise. It is going to happen. Which leads me to the next implication. Which, going back to my, uh, my least favorite book of the metaphorical Bible that many of y'all be reading, uh, Second Exaggerations. And in Second Exaggerations, right there along with the verse of God helps those who help themselves, there's this verse. And the verse is, God will never give you more than you can handle. How many people in this room have been counseled with that? And even worse, have counseled people with that. Some of y'all are so biblically illiterate, you might have that tattooed somewhere on your body right now. When the Bible, the, the whole concept of, oh, yeah, 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 well, you know, God will never, never give you more than you can handle. I don't know where in the Bible you got that. Again, it has to be second exaggerations because it is not in the Bible. Maybe in the Apocrypha, I don't know, but it is not in the Bible. I would argue the opposite. God will regularly, consistently give you more than you can handle. You know why? Because if God never gave you something that you couldn't handle, there would be no reason for you to turn to him. God will regularly give you more than you can handle so that you are forced to turn back to him and to others. That's how he does it. He did it that way on purpose. The lie then becomes if you believe that false concept that's more uh, worldly than it is heavenly, then, then when God gives you more than you can handle, you don't think it's God that did it. Oh, the enemy's got me. No, no. The Savior is still with you. You're still in the ark. I, 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 let, me, let me say this. This week alone, I, I talked to two different people who, uh, one was celebrating their one-year anniversary of this physical burden that they, that, got, that they had gone through. One was celebrating their nine-year anniversary. And both of them told me essentially with tears in their eyes, how they are so grateful for the burden that God gave them. Because the burden revealed that they were not God, and so they, therefore they needed God. God gave them more than they could handle, and it forced them to grow closer to him and closer to the people that were in their lives. Both were praising God for the burden he gave them. You see, here's the thing. The Bible says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. But if you're anything like me, I want God's power. I just don't want the weakness part. I want my power and God's power to come together like the Avengers. <laughs> but God's power, it says, is made perfect in my weakness. And there's nothing that will make you feel weaker than when you are carrying a burden that you cannot carry. Here's the other thing. 
The word there to bear, the, the implication for the word there, bear in Greek, is to come alongside someone close enough to help support them in whatever they're trying to lift. The, the, the word there implies intimacy. It, it implies proximity. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. You might be sitting here today and you might have a burden that is swallowing you up, right? It's overwhelming you. It's crushing you. But, but we, we were talking about this during our teaching team, that a lot of times the same people who are complaining about that are not putting themselves in community for anyone to actually know them. So, so the meme on Instagram, they literally refer to it. The, 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 the first picture is of this person complaining about how nobody knows them and no one's helping them carry their, their burdens and no one uh, is coming out to reach out to them. And then it's like, this is you. And then it says, also you. And the, the second picture is the person sprinting out of the service the moment the, 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 the church, the moment the service ends. I can't believe no one knows me as I break Usain Bolt's record running out of this building. but it's the church's fault. It ain't my fault. You should just know my burdens. You should be able to read my mind. A lot of us want the benefit of community without any of the costs. Here's another thing that this passage exposes. It exposes the myth of self-sufficiency. I don't know why we've taught this to people who grew up in the church, but there's this assumption that the more mature I become, the more independent I become. That might be capitalism, but it's not Christianity. So, so don't allow your, your, your politics to, to influence your political theology to impact your, your Christian theology. Self-sufficiency is not only not a mark of maturity, it's a mark of pride. Because the Bible says that the more like Christ we become, the more not independent or codependent we become, the more interdependent we become. Here, let's go back to the two types of people, the superiority person and the inferiority person. Let me show you how the superiority person, the prideful person, deals with this. And let me show you how the inferiority person, the, pit, the, the person who's, who's self-pity deals with it. Let me start with the first. The person who struggles with a superiority form of pride, here's how they deal with this passage. They either, it, it comes out in two ways. They don't share their burden with anybody. Now, that's how you know. You're, if you're the person who says, I don't got to give my burden to take, I'm going to carry my own burden. That is a form of the superiority pride, right? That's how they deal with their own burdens. But here's how they deal with the other. There's two ways that this person can be revealed. So as I give you the examples, the symptoms, I want you to evaluate yourself. They, because they've done, they've done that, right? They have decided, no, no, I, I am carrying my own burden. They tend to treat people the exact same way. So then as a result, they have to carry their own burden too. That's the one way. But the other way, and you're not gonna like this one, is the person who says, not only am I not gonna give any of my burden, I'm going to carry everyone else's. Oh, that looks so humble. The burden bearer of the family. The Luisa from Encanto. <laughs> right? It's pride. It's arrogant and it's conceited. The I'm not going to give any burden, but I'm going to take everyone else's burden. When you do that, 
you're assuming you're the savior and not just another sinner. Here's the problem with that. When you're that superiority form, the people around you either feel overlooked by you because you don't help them at all, or they feel overwhelmed by you because you try to control them. I don't know why, but this happens a lot when, with adult uh, parents who are uh, parenting adults. It, it, the, the, these, this person who like tries to take all the, not just the burdens of their children, but the entire load, they're taking the backpack too, and all the cargo. You know that adulthood is a form of, load, it's a load that they're supposed to carry? Like that's something that they are supposed to carry? Like that's part of the process? That your kids need you less and less every day, not more and more every day? Those same kids end up removing themselves from that person's presence. Because whatever we idolize, we tend to push away. And it can come off like this desire to just I, just, I just care so much. What can I do? I care so much. I'm not saying there's no love there. I, I, I'm saying that it's more control than it is care. And that's why I love what Paul says. Paul says, if anyone thinks there's something, when they're nothing, they deceive themselves, right? But the, the, the superiority person, the prideful person is like, oh, I get what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there are certain people that think they're something, but they're nothing. Not me. I'm a somebody. No, no, no. The implication is all of us are nobodies. Some of us have just accepted the fact. It's like when Jesus says, I came to heal not those who think they're healthy, but those who know they're sick. He's not teaching that there are people who are actually healthy. He's just thinking, he's teaching that there's people who think they're healthy. And I don't know why this is the case, but a lot of times, the, the, what happens is when we fall into that, again, our motivations might be good, but... but like I mentioned earlier, we, we try to be their only savior instead of a fellow sinner. They have a savior. His name's Jesus. And he's your savior too. Now let's talk about the inferiority person. The inferiority person, if the first person falls into that prideful independence, the inferiority person falls into the pitiful codependence. And so here's what the inferiority person does in this, in this situation. They either take all of your, again, simil it's similar. It's funny because on the outside they look similar, but they're not. The, the inferiority person, they take all of the burden and all of the load of the people around them. But the reason why they're doing it, get this, is because they actually want people to return the favor. I'm going to send you the text, but only because I want you to text me back. I'm gonna be here in your time of need so that you can be there in my time of need. And again, it looks humble, but it's actually prideful. It's coming from a place of pity. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna bend over backwards for you and idolize you so that you can then idolize me. And then when people don't, you get hurt. Here's the other thing about this person. Another way that their pitifulness, their inferiority comes out is, is they don't carry anyone else's load at all. They're just there to give you theirs. You know those people? Every time they call, every time they text, 
Every time you see their, phone come, their, their name come up on your phone, you start being drained immediately. <laughs> because all they do, they think it's a one-sided thing, and so you bear all my burdens so that I can go live free. I have another problem. Can you fix it? That's what the inferior person does. And here's what's, here's what's really sad. What's sad is, I don't know why this happens, but what's sad is a lot of times the superiority person that's prideful ends up marrying the inferiority person that's pitiful. The, 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 the ultra independent person tends to marry the ultra codependent person. And what happens is, is the more independent and prideful this person becomes, the more codependent and pitiful this person becomes. And it's this, danger, this vicious cycle. And here's what's really sad. When that marriage goes the way it's going to go, which is they just get further and further apart, the, 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 the codependent parent ends up turning to their kids to meet a need. Now I'm going to take all my load and all my codependency and all my unhealth, and I'm going to put it on my child to meet a need that my spouse couldn't. There are children here right now who are carrying a burden for their parents that you should never have had to carry. Carrying their load, not only their burden, their load, their specific load. The problem with both the superior person and the inferior person is that neither sees themselves biblically, neither sees themselves accurately. And so one falls into independence, the other falls into codependence instead of falling into interdependence with the people around us. Here's what the gospel does. Let me show you the gospel again in this. The reason why the gospel is good news is because the gospel tells you every single day, if you're willing to listen, it tells you every single day that the ultimate burden, the heaviest, most crushing burden was the law of God. More than any other burden, more than cancer, more than financial ruin, more than bankruptcy, more than divorce, more than infidelity. The greatest burden, the heaviest burden that none of us could carry was the perfect, holy law of God. What the Bible teaches in light of that, what the gospel teaches, what redemption teaches is that Jesus Christ, he took that burden for us. He took the yoke that we deserved so that, get this, we might get his yoke. I didn't even say this in the last service, but this was so good. I was doing a word study on this. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, I thought the word burden there in Greek is the one from verse two, but it's not. It's actually the word from verse five. It's the individual. So Jesus says, my burden is light because he's literally giving you a individual pack for you. How beautiful is that? Jesus takes the burden of verse two so that we might get the load of verse five. That's what he talks about when he talks about his, his, uh, his yoke being easy and his burden being light. It's the same word in English, but it's not the same word in Greek. He took our burden so that we might get his load. Come on. Amen. He fulfilled it. It says in Isaiah that he took our infirmities. It says in Isaiah that he carried our diseases. It says in Isaiah that he was crushed for our iniquities. The same Greek word here to bear is the same word that's used when Jesus is bearing his cross, walking to Golgotha. But ultimately it wasn't his cross that he was bearing. It was my cross that he was bearing. He didn't deserve to die. I deserve to die. 
But when we understand that, it says in Psalm 55, it says that we now, get this, can cast our cares and our burdens on God. It says in Psalm 55 that we can cast our burdens on God and he will sustain us. And it says he will not permit the righteous to be moved, which here's the thing on the surface seems like really good news. The problem is I'm not righteous. That's a great promise if I was righteous, that God won't allow the righteous to be moved when they cast their cares on him. But what's beautiful is, is what the gospel promises. Remember what we talked about earlier, the difference between guilt and glory. Jesus didn't just come to deal with our guilt. He come to uh, 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 apply to us the glory. And so now I can glorify God. I am not just not a sinner. I am a righteous individual in the eyes of God. And so as the righteous person will not be moved because of the work of Jesus Christ. Psalm 55 is good news to me because the gospel is good news to me. First Peter 5, when it says, cast your cares on God, and, 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 and it's right before that, it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And then he says to cast your cares on God because he cares for you. It's funny that, that, that even in that passage, Peter is connecting humility with casting your cares on God. That if you don't cast your cares on God, you are a prideful human being. You are conceited. You are arrogant. You are self-centered. The way I humble myself before the mighty hand of God is by casting all my cares and all my burdens on him. And listen, I can trust him with the smaller burdens because he took care of the greatest one. He fulfilled the law of Moses so that through faith in him, I might fulfill the law of Christ. And, and the more I depend on the one somebody, which is him, the more I will be interdependent with everybody else. And then the fourth and final lesson and implication is this. The gospel enables us to submit willingly and share generously. To submit willingly and share generously. Look what it says in verse six. It's the last verse. It says, let the one who is uh, taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this last principle has to do with authority more than it has to do with community. It has to do with the up and down nature of church more than it has to do with the side to side nature of church. Why? Because Paul here is referring to the relationship between those who teach and those who are taught. And it says here, it, it, well, it James says in his letter that those who teach will be held to a higher standard. Now, here's the thing. This includes people like me, right? Pastors and elders. It's not less than that, but it's actually much more than that. It actually includes you as well. And here's why. Because the Greek word for teach here is the word catechize, to instruct. It doesn't even talk about preaching. It's talking about catechizing and instructing. In other words, if you are a parent here today, Paul's talking about you. If you are a grandparent here today, Paul's talking about you. If you serve in any ministry, Paul's talking about you. If you are aunt or an uncle, Paul's talking about you. Anyone who teaches and instructs, even if you are a school teacher, Paul's talking about you. Anyone who teaches or instructs is included in this. It's not just pastors and elders. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. Why do I say that? I say that because if all of us are included in that, 
If that includes everyone who teaches, everyone who instructs, everyone who catechizes, let me give you a very specific example. Parents with their children, on the one hand, there are certain burdens that are meant to be carried together. You're not to carry by yourself. And yet on the other hand, there's a very specific load that only you can carry with the children in your life. So here's what I mean. And actually this week we came together, uh, me with the, the kids team, because over the next two, three years as we plant our Carvel campus, we're gonna be rewriting our children's curriculum and we're gonna be revamping what we do to equip parents for discipleship. And one of the reasons, if I'm being honest, is because even though 40% of our church is in discipleship relationships and it's awesome, I think the reason why people need to be discipled at 25 is because they weren't discipled at five. So here's what I mean. There's two extremes. There's the parent who says, no, the burden is all mine. No one can help me. I got to do it. And then there's the parent who says, the burden, nor the burden, nor the load are mine. I'm paying for Christian school. I'm bringing them to Awana. I'm bringing them to, 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 to Sunday school. And if my kid doesn't become a Christian, it ain't my fault. I signed the check. Those are the two extremes. That yes, there are some parts that are burdens, but there are other parts that are loads, specifically when it comes to parenting. So, so here's the other implication. The other implication is the word there to instruct and to teach, to catechize, it implies that the word of God is what's being taught. In other words, as teachers and instructors, our job is not to give the people that we're teaching our opinions, our, our, our preferences, our thoughts. No, no, it's to tell them what the word of God actually says. That is our job. And it says that we, we are to share. The word there, share, is the word koinonia, that we are to share equally, that, 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 that the gospel, get this, it, it puts everyone on equal playing field. So I, as your pastor, am not better than any of you. I am at the same level as all of you. So we are to share equally. And it says that we are to share good things. And here's what's interesting about that word good. There's two words for Greek, in Greek for the word good. Uh, one word is the word kalos or kalos, which means material things. The other word is the word agathos, which means spiritual things. When the passage says that we are to share good things with those who teach, it's not talking about kalos, material things. In other words, I'm not going to tell you to give me a raise. I'm not asking for your money. That's not what this passage is talking about. The passage is talking about agathos, which is the spiritual things, the moral things, the heavenly things, the quality things. In other words, the most quality thing is the gospel message. So when it says that we are to share uh, good things with each other, the greatest thing is the good news of the gospel. And so I share it with you on Sunday morning, but I want you to share it with me. I want you to encourage me with the gospel to edify me with the gospel, to examine me with the gospel. That is the greatest thing you can give me. That is the greatest thing I can give you. I, Lily and I just finished watching this Hillsong documentary uh, a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that shocked me about Carl Lentz's fall is that all the things that he ended up doing, people already knew about. There was all these signs, but no one called him out because it's Pastor Carl, what are we gonna do? He's gifted in preaching, who cares? Listen, I am a nobody. The only somebody that we get to talk about, the only somebody that we get to celebrate is the Lord Jesus Christ. You should be able to call me out. You should be able to hold me accountable. Me and the elders and our staff. 
Because every single one of us is a nobody telling everybody about somebody. Come on. Come on. Come on. So as we conclude, let me say this. Hebrews 10 tells us, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place as a result of the gospel, since we have confidence to be in relationship with God, that relationship with God vertically gives me assurance and it allows me to not neglect meeting together, to not neglect stirring one another up, to not neglect encouraging one another. What the author of Hebrews says is that the more I remind myself of the gospel content, the more I will then turn to gospel community. The more I find my identity in the person of Christ, the more I will find my community in the body of Christ. And the reason why I can give all that I have horizontally is because Jesus has given me all that I need vertically. The gospel enables us to treat each other like siblings because through Christ, God has become our father. The gospel enables us to carry one another's burdens because Christ has taken our greatest burden. The gospel empowers us to comfort one another because the God of all comfort has comforted us. And the gospel enables us to love one another because the God of the universe first loved us. Amen. What a, what a great lesson. Uh, welcome, Church at Home family. Uh, my name is Stephen Lyles, and this is... Kristen Pruitt. Kristen, she's joining us today. I don't think we've ever we've done ever, this together. No, yeah, all we right. haven't. All right, this is the first time. <laughs> um, well, welcome, family. We're so grateful that you're here. Uh, what a great lesson from Pastor Will today. Yes. Um, and we'll get into that in just a few minutes. Um, Melissa is moderating, so reach out to her and tell her where you're, you know, where you're watching from or drop a question in if you have a question about something we talk about or something that was said today. And there should be a QR code somewhere over here above me. Um, if you need anything, you can click on that, and there are a bunch of resources that you can go to and ask questions or get prayer or uh, if you, you know, want to get connected to a church in your area or you want to get connected here, you can, you can do all that through that QR code. And so we're so grateful that you're with us today. Um, Kristen's going to start off by reading uh, Galatians 5, 26 through 6, and, um, and then we'll jump into some questions. Sounds great. Uh, so Galatians 5, 26 through 6, 6. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Yeah, just a lot to unpack there. Yes. Like we, we don't have enough time to talk about all of it, but uh, just a lot there. But um, what what's something new that jumped out at you that God yeah. revealed to you today? 
through the message? Is something that gave you comfort or convicted or confronted you, Kristen? Yes. So um, I had two. I think um, for comfort, I really loved when he was talking about burdens and loads, um, just thinking about God carries our burdens. Um, That's not something that I have to do myself. I can cast all my burdens, all my anxieties, all my things onto him. And that was comforting for me. And then I was just really um, overwhelmed and thankful for just the community that we have in our life who comes alongside us. Um, And then for convicting, uh, just another thing about the burdens and loads, um, when he's talking about loads specifically and how I will one day answer to God for the load that I carry, um, that was just something that was a reminder to me. And um, so, yeah. Yeah, I I think similarly, like the burden and load thing was really important to me hearing that being reminded of that but just just the definitions of the two mm. and that you know we can get that twisted sometimes and that's that's not something we should do yeah um but then just a reminder that uh christianity is not rainbows and sunshine and all the time mm-hmm. you know uh, we i've re- recently gone through um something really hard something really you know that you know, i suffered through and uh, the loss of my father and um you know, it, it was important for me to trust in God and to lean in, lean on Him. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 I only thought about and and you know thought I could carry it myself, I would we would I would have not made it. Mm. Like, there's no way. Yeah, it's so it's so heavy. Yeah. So, um, so that was really um, a great reminder of that um, that that myth that he talked about um, that mm-hmm. uh, God won't give you anything you can't handle. Like mm-hmm. that's not true that's yeah. not the bible yeah. like yeah, he repeatedly is going to give you things you can't handle because right. he wants you to lean on him right. you know he wants you to to trust in him so that's kind of where uh, you know I, I came from the what i got from from this today yeah and that was new yeah um so out of the four implications of gospel-centered community which one stood out the most to you yeah i think it had to be number two the gospel calls us to gentle restoration and not to judge mental mm-hmm. retribution i just need to be reminded that uh, my job is not to judge those outside of christ mm-hmm. um that my job is to with gentleness and love uh, help redeem those who are in Christ. Yeah. You know, help to bring redemption um, and and bring them back. You know, to God, not mm-hmm. not uh, to condemn or to judge people who are outside of Christ. Yeah, I use that that metaphor all the time. We can't leave meat out and expect it not to rot. Mm. And and people always look at me weird when I say that. Yeah, and then I have to explain it. Yeah, but it's true. Yeah, you know, we we do that. We expect people who don't have standards to have mm-hmm. a standard that we can't even hold. Right. <laughs> and so, um, so that's kind of where, you yeah, know, got me today. What about you? Yeah. Um, I think for me, um, kind of said it in my comfort and convict, but I really love the gospel empowers us to carry one another's burden, uh, while stewarding our own load. Um, and just kind of breaking down, I love a good word study. Uh, yeah. So breaking down the burden and the load um, and just looking into what those two things mean. Um, I think, too, for me, you know, when I was talking about just the community we have around us and um, you talking about this myth that we're never going to endure hard things and just the reminder that we all 
have burdens, whether it's yeah. medically or financially or um, all the ones that Pastor Will listed today, but we all have something. Um, you know, thinking about my husband and I, we've struggled with infertility and we're headed into year 10. And um, just thinking about, you know, how heavy of a burden that has been and um, how hard it would have been to carry that by ourselves, Right. Because um, we can't, we can't do that right. apart. Yeah. You know, yes, we're casting that burden on God, but also it's important to have community around us. Sure. Um, so I don't know that, that section really got to me. So, um, yeah. So talking about the burden and load. So yeah. according to Paul, what are the differences between the two? Um, yeah. And then what can happen when we confuse them or treat them like they are the same thing? Sure. So the way Pastor Will talked about it today was a burden is something that's that's too heavy. We can't we can't carry it. It's a you know it's a a, a heavy stone that we can't carry by ourselves or a, a unbearable weight. Um, and then a load is a backpack. Mm-hmm. Like it's just our personal stuff that yeah. we that we have to carry. And there's a big difference in those two, obviously. And when we confuse them. Uh, what it does is it pushes us to think of self more, mm-hmm. and it pushes us to that that you know old lie that that Satan you know created in the garden mm-hmm. that you can be self sufficient, yeah. and that's just simply not the truth. Yeah. You know, and so um, while we do have a, a, a load that we can carry that mm-hmm. we need to carry, mm-hmm. we can't carry all our burdens. Yeah. You know, and and so the fact that you know, that's the difference. And, and, and we need to be careful mm. that we're not ostracizing ourselves with our own, with our own bur- with right. our burdens yeah. that we can't carry. Yeah. And then, it, and then we don't understand why we're so broken and so right. lost. And yeah. so like, well, it's because you're trying to do it by yourself yeah. and it's not possible. No. You know, yeah. it wasn't ever meant to be that way. Right. So, yeah. So out of the two types of pride or conceit um, found in verse 26, which one do you struggle with the most? Yeah, I, this one was a hard question for me because I kept going back to, bo- to both of them, really. Yeah. Uh, there are times where I feel superior to people because, again, I'm thinking of self and I'm mm-hmm. trying to judge them and, and all those things we talked about. Uh, but there are also times where, um, you know, I'm being false humble, you know, uh-huh. or it's one of the pastors here said this one time that, you know, false pride is still pride. Yeah. So false humbleness is still pride. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so I do that sometimes where I, I beat myself down mm-hmm. so much yeah. that, um, you know, it's, it's the same thing. It's, yeah. it's the same side of both coins. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's still self. Yeah. And so, um, for me, it's kind of both and depending on what, situation mm-hmm. there is or what's happening in my life, you know, I'll do yeah. that. Yeah. I, I told uh, Kristen and Melissa earlier that it, it's hard for me to take compliments because I don't feel like I am good enough. Yeah. Like, and so I, it's hard for me to take compliments. Yeah. And so an elder recently gave me a compliment <laughs> on a call and I was like, no, like, don't do that. I'm nothing. And they were like, <laughs> uh, you're pretty good at some stuff. And I was like, no, 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 no. And so, you know, I had to check myself and be like, but God's given you gifts. Yeah. God's given you yeah. things that you're Absolutely. good at. And, and, um, and, you know, glory, 
glory to God yes. for that, yeah. right? And right. as long as you're doing that, then uh, then you're okay. Yeah. But sometimes I push that a little too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Earlier we were talking, I was like, I don't know which one I am. I feel like I'm kind of both. Can you be both? Yeah. Steven's like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I struggle. And I like kind of how you said it's almost like, not situational, I guess, but like kind of who you're around can yeah. sometimes yeah. Um, influence that. And I thought that was, I don't know. Um, I feel like I'm kind of the same way in that, in that aspect. So, right. right. You know, something that jumped out at me too was, um, you know, he, he kind of brought it all together. Paul is again, bringing it all together mm-hmm. and, and talking about these things at the last of this, um, this letter that he wrote. Um, but that this pastor will talked about this most heaviest burden that we, mm. we could ever have yeah. is, is the, the law of God. Yeah. Right. And like the old Testament, there was no way for people to complete that. There was no right. way for people to hold that. Yeah. Uh, it's only Jesus coming to fulfill that. Like yes. Jesus was the person yeah. that fulfilled that. Um, but it, it says a phrase in the scriptures that says the law of Christ. Mm-hmm. And this week in our staff meeting, I shared that sometimes we just want to replace the law of Moses with the law of Christ. Mm-hmm. And we're just replacing one law for another law. Mm-hmm. We still can't do that. Right. We, you know, if you, if you were to equal the law of Christ to the greatest two commandments, yeah. love God and love your neighbor. Right. We still can't do that. No, yeah. <laughs> like, we can't check those boxes. No. Um, so I think we have to be careful, too, to make sure that we understand that it's, again, it's not about yeah. us. Yeah. It's about what God's done. Yeah. 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 So. Well, that's all the time we have for, for today, Kristen. <laughs> uh, I feel like we just started. I know. Um, anyway, so we're so thankful that you are joining us. If you have a question about something we said or if you have a question about uh, anything, please let us know. You can yeah. Click the QR code and fill out um, fill out a form. It just tells us about you or what you need. And we're so grateful that you're with us. If you're in our area, in the Memphis area, please come by and see us here at this location or the Carville location. Yeah. Um, and uh, we we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to help you be in community with other people, even yeah. where you're at. Yeah. We can help you find a church locally where you're at so you can find community and be in community because we need it yeah we we all need it together so we're so grateful for you uh we'll pray we're praying for you weekly uh if you need anything please don't hesitate to reach out to us so uh, we will see you next week